You're listening to Washington Post Live's First Look podcast with Jonathan Capehart. Welcome to First Look, Washington Post Live's one-stop shop for news and analysis. I'm Jonathan Capehart, associate editor for The Washington Post. Well, The Post had a revealing story about a very tense battle between Justice Department prosecutors and senior FBI officials about how to get those classified documents from former President Donald Trump's Florida residence. Carol Lennig, an investigative reporter at The Post, was one of the reporters on that story, and she joins me now. Carol, welcome back to First Look. Glad to be here, Jonathan. Okay, so conducting a raid on a former president's home was uncharted territory. Your story was vigorous. Um, your your story is about the vigorous um, internal debate within the department that led to it. But was there a possibility that there could have been no raid? conducted at all? What are you and your colleagues, what did you and your colleagues find out? You know, that is such a good question that I haven't been asked yet since the story broke. So kudos to you. Um, basically what we learned is there was simmering tension, then a bitter tug of war, and then a absolute knockdown drag out shouting argument a months-long dispute about basically should we be treating the president the way we would treat someone else who had classified information, including a senior government official, and and seemed to have a ton of it and wasn't cooperating, and then later uh, who seemed to be concealing it and, and obstructing a criminal investigation. You asked the question that's so smart, is it possible there never would have been a raid? Well, that is why we wrote the story, because we were shocked to learn that in June, some FBI agents leading this investigation suggested closing down the investigation. They were talking about how, look, you know, we went to Mar-a-Lago, we served a subpoena on the president, the former president in May, and in early June, he turned over through his lawyer about 38 classified documents and said in a signed assertion, his lawyer said, we've turned over everything. The FBI agents were like, okay, nothing to see here, we're done. Um, prosecutors did not have that level of trust and did not agree at all. In fact, they felt really strongly that more investigation needed to happen. And when they did that, well, you know this story, Jonathan, when investigators and prosecutors said, let's get to it, they found the video surveillance, subpoenaed that surveillance from inside the club and discovered that people were moving boxes of records out of the storage area after Donald Trump received the subpoena to turn over all that material. I mean, I'm just gobsmacked. <laughs> I mean, I know all of these things, I read this story, but to hear you say all of these things out loud it's spectacular that there was even a even a debate at the at the start of uh, you answering the question. You laid out all of these, just all of the evidence that they had, and still FBI agents were saying, "Okay, well, we're done." They handed over 38 pages. What I mean, seriously, why was there a debate? Because given what you just said, there shouldn't have been one. Also a great question, right? Well, we've gotten as, you know, we worked on this for months and what we learned is that there were two explanations that FBI agents were giving each other and were giving their bosses and were giving prosecutors. And the two reasons, neither of them are um, 
you know, are ones I think you're going to love, but here we go. The first one provided by senior FBI officials to us was, look, these agents were afraid of Donald Trump, afraid of what had happened to FBI personnel in previous investigations of him. I mean, let's keep in mind, Andrew McCabe, who opened up a, an investigation into Trump's obstruction in 2017, had his tax returns audited, uh, mm. apparently at the direction of former President Donald Trump. He had he was fired by Donald Trump days before he reached retirement age and was able to collect his full pension. He had to hire a lawyer to try to recover those pensions uh, and benefits that he was deserving of, and he was successful, but what a trial essentially for launching that investigation. Everybody was mindful of what they called the the hangover or the lessons of Crossfire Hurricane. Crossfire Hurricane is the code word for the investigation of Russia's interference in the 2017 election and Donald Trump eventually trying to obstruct that investigation. So there's that fear. The second reason, I'll try to say more quickly, um, is that FBI agents told their colleagues, look, this is a former president. We do not want to be second-guessed and scrutinized by inspector general or Republican members of Congress later that we didn't dot all our I's and cross all our T's. We want to do this exactly right. And there's no reason to be aggressive unnecessarily. Their view was, hey, why do we have to be combative? Let's just try to get these records. You know, I'm, I'm, take, I'm taking notes here, Carol, because <laughs> this is really Incredible. And your first your your first answer that agents were were afraid of Donald Trump and the Andrew McCabe example of having his his taxes uh, audited leads to uh, uh, my third question about this. The prosecutors at Justice and the senior FBI officials, they're not supposed to be political. I mean, they are supposed to just follow the law, follow the facts. But did your reporting show any evidence that politics factored in into this dispute? And when I when I say when people hear politics, they're thinking Democrat versus Republican, left versus right. But the fact that the agents the agents were afraid of Donald uh, what Donald Trump could do to them does that does that fall under the rubric of politics? You know, Jonathan, I want to answer this carefully because, you know, we are reporting does not go into what the partisan interests are or leanings of FBI agents. You're exactly right. FBI agents and prosecutors throughout my entire career, uh, I, I have known many of them and revered them, and they put their politics at the door. They have some opinions, but in the service of justice, it's unimportant to them. However, you know, I think we've all seen in the last five years that more of people's partisan viewpoints are not being checked at the door. Answering your direct question, I think it's inescapable to conclude that politics is the is the result of people being afraid of a incredibly high profile standard bearer for the Republican Party, being able to target folks in their agency when they're doing their job, being able to target, blemish, and 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 basically end run some of their careers. When when 
people are afraid of that kind of political power and they are making decisions based on it, it's hard not to conclude that that is political. I want to uh, add one more thing. I, I need to add please, one more thing about Yeah, this. go ahead. A really smart editor once said to me while we were working on this story, Peter Walston, he said at the very beginning, you know, is the Justice Department in all its forms, the FBI, the prosecutors, is it capable of being a political still and and protecting democracy? And that's still a really open question right now based on this reporting, I feel. You know, there was fear. And without fear or favor is how the Justice Department is supposed to operate. That is uh, an excellent point, without fear or favor. Um, and Donald Trump hasn't been in the uh, hasn't been president since January twentieth, twenty twenty one, and yet there still appears to be a, a hangover. Um, does that hangover seem to go right up to the the attorney general? And I'm thinking about this because of the hearing that he sat through with uh, Senate Republicans just raining fire on him, accusing him of all sorts of, of political political actions. You know, I know Merrick Garland from covering him when he was on the appellate court, the chief of that court, and, and I feel that his experience as a judge has made him a very thoughtful, rigorous, almost ponderous public official. He is not an operational prosecutor like many previous uh, attorney generals, but it, it does seem to me that he is somewhat impervious to the, this reign of attacks. It's annoying to him, no doubt, but um, I think the way in which that political ammunition causes pain and affects decisions is below Merrick Garland. It's for it's just a couple rungs below him for people who want to, you know, still maybe go to another confirmation battle for another high job or FBI agents who are very senior who don't want to have their careers blemished or attacked by Republicans and then be in the Google machine forever and be unable to be promoted to a very senior um, confirmable job. So I think it, it, it can have impacts. I I don't think Garland is a person that is uh, taking these uh, slings and arrows and changing his behavior as a result. And you know, as someone who has not covered <laughs> Garland uh, as long as you have, but just watching him um, since becoming attorney general, I have to agree with you 100%. He, the guy just sort of flies at 40,000 feet. They can say whatever they wanna say to him. And he's just like that. It drives people crazy particularly folks who want him to, to act very quickly on things that they think he should be acting on. But I'm like, let the man take his time because once he makes a decision, at least I will feel that it is airtight. Kara Lenig, three-time Pulitzer Prize winning investigative reporter at the Washington Post. Thanks for coming back to First Look. Have a good weekend. Thanks, Jonathan. Great question. See you soon. See you soon. We're going to keep the conversation going with the Opinions Roundtable in just a moment. Let's go to the opinion side of the Washington Post, where we will find Washington Post columnists Christine Emba and Ramesh Punuru. Christine, Ramesh, welcome to First Look. Thanks Thank for you. Having us. 
All right, Christine, what do you make of this tug of war between Justice Department prosecutors and FBI officials about conducting that raid on Mar-a-Lago? And, and, and when you answer this, I just wonder, do you think that Carol Lennig and her colleague's story uh, lend credence in any way to Trump's assertion that the raid and other investigations are part of a, quote, witch hunt? Yeah, in fact, I would say that this report lends far more credence to the fact that it wasn't, that the FBI, in fact, almost had to be pushed to investigate Mar-a-Lago uh, and go after Trump. They were extremely careful and were, in fact, looking for any excuse possible not to do it. But it seems that the evidence was overwhelming. Um, I want to tack back to what Carol was saying about sort of the fear around investigating Trump, around retaliation. Um, if anything, I think we should continue to be worried about the influence that uh, Trump and whatever power he has left um, has in our political system. Yeah, you know, Ramesh, your thoughts on, on this story, particularly the tug of war over what to do. Am I wrong in thinking that such a tussle was a good thing? Hmm. Yeah, well, I think that um, some behind the scenes debate, uh, even intense debate about how to proceed in this extraordinary case was inevitable and should have happened. Um, just as I uh, assume, uh, I have to go back and brush, uh, go through the, uh, the reporting on the uh, Clinton investigations of 2015 and 2016, but I assume there were similar levels of debate um, because, you know, you've got this very high profile political figure. And in that sense, you know, everybody, I think, understands that it's not just a sort of run of the mill case. Um, and then it becomes hard when you're thinking about sort of the public fallout from an investigation like this to insulate yourselves totally from sort of improper political considerations, just like fear of criticism and so on. So none of that is particularly shocking. But what's interesting in the story, I think, is you get the kind of texture of this debate a little bit, and you do get a strong sense from this reporting that there was a kind of a foot dragging, and as, as I think Christine was saying, um, kind of almost looking for excuses uh, not to act. What, what One thing I would be very interested in seeing is if any of the field agents who were skeptical and resistant to taking action after documents were turned out turned up, uh, and it turned out that the Trump lawyers had not been completely forthcoming about, or at least accurate about what the um, uh, what Mar-a-Lago had. Uh, whether any of them had second thoughts and thought, well, I guess we were right to press forward with this. You know, the the um, <clears throat> the one thing that Carol said, among many things that Carol said was just the fear that the FBI agents had about the retaliation um, that they could face um, from Donald Trump and Andrew McCabe being um, their sort of the, the case study of what they didn't want to have happen to him was actually quite chilling. Um, Christine, at the time of this raid, um, future House, speak, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy said the Justice Department had reached, quote, an intolerable state of weaponized politicization. And we saw that kind of rhetoric employed during a Wednesday Senate hearing with Attorney General Merrick Garland. So am I to take it that Republicans still believe that kind of rhetoric helps them? <laughs> I, I think you have to believe that because they keep using it. 
I do think we've also seen the Republicans seem a little bit confused as to what helps them and what does not at this point. I mean, if you think about what they're saying, an intolerable level of uh, weaponization, saying that to Merrick Garland, um, who had his Supreme Court nomination essentially weaponized against him, you know, that man has been through it. Um, I... I find it kind of shocking that you would even attempt to say something like that about uh, the Justice Department under, you know, his watch. Um, I do think, though, that the Republican Party right now, Kevin McCarthy, Speaker of the House and many House members, Marjorie Taylor Greene, et cetera, are speaking to what they see as the base, a base that still loves Trump, a base that still believes in sort of conspiracy theories about how the government is out to get them. Um, Kevin McCarthy, I think, in particular, having been extraordinarily weakened uh, in his 15 uh, nomination votes for speaker, uh, is trying to sort of gin up any kind of support that he can get. He'll say anything at this point, and Republicans are willing to say anything at this point. What gives kind of a lie to their assertions is the idea that, you know, the FBI is targeting Donald Trump, who is an innocent man. At the same time, as Carol points out in her piece, once the FBI did begin to investigate, they found Trump officials carting uh, secret documents out of Mar-a-Lago. So he was, in fact, doing crimes. Right. Well, I, think- uh, well, I mean, just moving, moving boxes around, making it clear that they didn't really give over all the, all the documents. And can we just talk about the fact that there was just a story about a month ago about how they found even more documents and a flash drive. <laughs> anyway, Ramesh, your 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 reaction to what Christine sure. Said. So um, going back to the sort of the Republican rhetoric, um, yeah. I think the, I think a lot of Republicans, including uh, now Speaker McCarthy, jumped the gun uh, in the way they responded to the raid in August. And, uh, you know, what should have been said, what would have been perfectly appropriate to say was this is an extraordinary act and it just it requires extraordinary justification. Uh, And we await, you know, quickly getting uh, getting a look at that on the on the bigger question of sort of the the rhetoric about the weaponization and politicization of law enforcement. um, I think that, you know, Republicans believe this uh, for in in large part. and I think there's some reason to believe in it. Sure, Garland was subjected to political hardball, and we can have different views about how that went. But that's different, I think, from the question of politicized law enforcement. And I think Republicans in particular right now are looking at the kind of harassment of peaceful pro-life protesters coupled with the lack of interest by federal investigators in violence and threats of violence against pro-life organizations and crisis pregnancy centers. And they think, well, that fits pretty well with this administration's priorities. It is it is part of an administration that really wants to reassure its allies it's got their back. Is this the right use of law enforcement resources? I think that that sort of thing is, is bound to give rise to Republican fears that law enforcement is not being even-handed. Um, Christine? I'm sorry, Ramesh. I, I, there's some reason to believe that the, that the Justice Department has been politicized, and then the example of pro-life yeah. organizations. Firebombs, vandalism, threats. Uh, you know, we haven't. You know, the, the just there hasn't been any even denunciation from Mary Garland 
of these attacks, this, you know, this widespread and seemingly um, uh, systematic campaign. And uh, instead, we have the case of Mark Huck, who uh, gets sort of gratuitously prosecuted in a case that ends up getting thrown out because it's so weak. Um, Chris, Christine, do you have any response to that? Um, I, I would say that my response is actually uh, confusion. I don't at all think that you can put the firebombing of uh, uh, pro-life organizations at the foot of the FBI or the Justice Department um, to That's the extent that thinking, these are of <laughs> crimes that are happening. I, I, I'm saying uh, uh, investigations uh, of those crimes happen from justice, FBI, and police forces. Uh, in the area, I just I don't see how those are related. Yeah, Ramesh, I want to let's move on because I want to come back to uh, the documents issue because President Biden and former Vice President Mike Pence they've cooperated with the Justice Department when classified documents were discovered among their respective belongings, and Donald Trump did not, clearly did not. So how differently do you see these cases? I think Trump's behavior was worse. Um, as far as we know about it. Uh, I think that uh, Biden's cooperation is a little bit overstated and that some of that cooperation was when the jig was up. There were certainly several months that went by between the Biden team learning about the documents it had in its possession and their tipping people off about it, let alone going public with it. Um, but you don't have the pattern of uh, uh, resistance to Justice Department, uh, FBI inquiries, and concealment. So I think that there is a different case. So whether it's a strong enough difference to justify prosecution, which I think at this point would have to be just on the obstruction stuff, not on uh, mishandling of documents, that's, I think, going to be a very tricky question for prosecutors and someday for jurors. Um, Christine, um <laughs> Sorry, I'm just I'm beyond beyond words here. How differently do you see the 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 cases? Yeah, I mean, I think they're extraordinarily different, actually. Ramesh, I think I would agree with you that in terms of sort of mishandling documents or having classified documents about the premises that perhaps the department wasn't uh, informed of, um, they are similar cases. But when you say that obstruction is the only difference here, I mean, we just have to look at uh, the degree of obstruction that has been perpetuated by the Trump administration, hiding the documents, stalling, trying to prevent investigation from happening, um, creating, you know, a discussion of sort of threats and fear within the FBI and then saying that its own administration, its own safety was being threatened. Uh, President Trump trying to whip up public sentiment by repeatedly claiming that he's being persecuted and victimized by the U.S. government. And then, as we just mentioned, the fact that when the FBI finally was able to get access to Mar-a-Lago, they found uh, employees literally moving the documents around and attempting to hide them. Um, the Biden administration yep. may have been lax in, uh, you know, identifying the documents firsthand, but then promptly handed them over without complaint. These are just two wildly different circumstances yeah. in my yeah. estimation. Yeah, it's, it sounds like we're agreeing, but, though, that it's an, it's an obstruction case. It's not a mishandling of documents case. And, well, I mean, it's it, it's actually both. Um, also, right. you left what, out- What, you, what you, the prosecutors are actually- Sorry, sorry Ramesh. And Christine, you, you, you left out in your, your litany there. He also ignored subpoenas. 
which is why the, the, the search um, had to happen. Let's move on to the Chicago's mayor's race. Um, mayor Lori Lightfoot lost her bid for re-election this week, the first time in decades that a mayor has lost re-election and was badly hurt by uh, rising crime in that city. Brandon Johnson, a Cook County commissioner, will now face Paul Vallis, the former CEO of the Chicago Public Schools, in a runoff in April. Here's part of what Vallis said in his victory speech Tuesday night. Let's listen. Public safety is the fundamental right of every American. It is a civil right. Oh, really? <laughs> and it is the principal responsibility of government. And we will have a safe Chicago. We will make Chicago the safest city in America. Well, time flies when you're having fun. We've got less than two minutes. So, Christine, how badly was Mayor Lightfoot hurt by the crime issue? And could she have handled it better? She was very badly hurt, honestly. Um, I think one of the things that Democrats, Democratic legislators, Democratic mayors, uh, Democratic leaders across the country are being faced by uh, rising levels of crime that, you know, peaked during the pandemic and are falling now, but are still higher than their baseline. Could she have done much? You know, she did state that she was against the idea of defunding the police, but she did allow uh, police vacancies to go unfilled in the city of Chicago. That said, mayors don't have that much leverage when it comes to changing crime statistics in their cities. There are economic proposals right. that they could pursue. Those don't have results that show up very quickly. So she was being blamed for something that probably wasn't within her control. Right. And Ramesh, we, I, around a minute left, what should Mayor sure. Lightfoot have done to demonstrate to voters that she, at a minimum, had a handle on crime? So I think at a certain point, the results are what matters more than the rhetoric or, or sort of how seriously you're taking an issue. But when you look at the absolute cratering of her support uh, between these elections, you have to assume it's not just she had, you know, bad luck or bad results, but that she didn't have great political skills in handling that those kinds of problems. She seems to have alienated a ton of allies. And it sounds like it's the kind of thing, it's like when people would say, well, Trump should have done this, Trump should have done that. And he's like, yeah, he'd have, but he'd have to have a completely different personality. Lightfoot, I think, would have had to be a completely different person. Wow. Well, I had so many questions about so many other topics and we didn't get to them, but we'll have you back and maybe they'll be back in the news at that time. <laughs> Christine Emba, Ramesh Panuru, thank you both very much for coming to First Look. Have a good weekend. You too. You too. Thanks for listening. To always stay up to date with First Look, subscribe to Washington Post Live's First Look on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen.